Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus, the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. And since it's May, that means the Giro d'Italia. So pick up an annual pass to GCN Plus now and you'll get every kilometre of the Giro live, plus a whole season's worth of action for less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. You'll be able to watch all your favourite races, including grand tours, monuments, classics, major stage races and more, live and ad-free on GCN+. So tune in from the 6th of May to see if Remco Evenepoel can finally win the race that kicked off his career, the Giro d'Italia, aka cycling's most beautiful race. So say the Italians anyway. Along with all this live action, GCN Plus has on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens so you never need to miss a key moment again. All of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu forward slash cyclist15. Welcome back to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm Emma Cole and today I have Will Strickson with me, who is Deputy Web Editor at Cyclist. Will, it's your first time on the podcast, which is very exciting. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Hello. Yes, I'm Will, as Emma described. I am from Nottingham. I'm 26 years old. I got into cycling uh, first, well, from what I can remember at the 2005 Tour de France, watching Michael Rasmussen in the polka dot jersey. I loved it. And then he crashed three times in the time trial. And it didn't put me off. Still great. But obviously he's uh, you know, certified doper, so it's not great. But I did meet him in Copenhagen at Tour de France last year. Got a selfie. Told him that he was the reason why I got into cycling. And he's just sort of shrugged it off. Didn't really react. And he took the selfie and went. So it made me feel a lot better about the fact that he's morally not great <laughs> what a charming man <laughs> and um, outside of cycling anything happening in there got a dog he's a black cock spaniel called herbie and he went to the beach for the first time at the weekend and loved it oh that's so cute did he go in the sea did he go swimming he sort of dipped his toes in he sort of did a bit of play, so he dipped his toe in and then ran away and then got caught out by a bigger wave than he was expecting and didn't go back near it again. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh, dogs are just the best, especially cock spaniels. My mum has a cock spaniel and she's called Tumble and she is a nightmare, but she's my favourite. She's lovely. Dogs are just the best. Um, well, let's we move on to our, our brilliant guest who we've got coming up. Yes. Uh, she's called Dr. Josie Perry, and she is a chartered psychologist. Um, she's a big advocate of mental flexibility um, and kind of the importance of emotional intelligence in terms of success, but also in terms of being your best self and looking after yourself. Um, so I think she's going to have some really, really interesting views. Um, so yeah, let's welcome to the show, Dr. Josie Perry. Welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Josie, it's great to have you with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure. Uh, so you're a chartered psychologist who works with both amateur and elite athletes, and you help people overcome barriers to success uh, so they can enjoy the sport they do and perform better overall. You've also got a PhD in political communications, which is pretty cool, um, and you've written several books, uh, including on the psychology of exercise, the Templars to success, and the Teenage Athlete's Guide to Mental Fitness. How did you begin working in sports psychology? So I have to whisper this because cyclists don't always like triathletes. I know we can be rather annoying and we can't we can't ride in groups. Um, but yeah, I'm a secret triathlete. <laughs> and I was over in Melbourne in 2013 to do Melbourne Ironman. 
And I'd done all my swimming in nice little healthy chlorinated pools in London. And I was standing on the beach in Melbourne or Frankston where they do the swim and the waves were absolutely horrendous. And I was really scared, as even were most of the Australians, to be honest. And um, the guy on the tannoy said, you guys can't control those waves, but you can control how you feel about them. And it was genuinely, I was 37, all my years, I'd never of doing different sports and I'd grown up doing ballet and everything, never kind of figured that I should use my brain to be better as an athlete. And a really proper light bulb moment. And um, I did the race, actually got my best Ironman time from it. And came back, when I got back to the UK, it was really interesting. How do I use my brain a bit more when it comes to sport? Because I'm not a natural athlete at all, but I have an okay brain. So it's like, how can I use this a bit better? And, and started researching it and I wasn't enjoying my job. And so I quit my job. I went back to university. I did a master's in psychology, a master's in sport and exercise psychology. And then you have to do three years of supervised practice with a kind of a chartered psychologist um, to learn what to do. Um, and then ever since then, I've been running my own practice. Epic. It was, yeah, it sounds a bit crazy. <laughs> it was the wave that got you. So why did you start talking about cycling? So that was obviously a different part of the triathlon. Did you find that you were more in tune with the bike because of the wave advice? Well, I don't know. I've, I've always loved the bike most. That's my thing. It's like survive the swim, have a really fun time on the bike. And then all those really fast people will come running past me on the run. But I find the more I work with cyclists, and I do work a lot in cycling, there are so many psychological issues that come up. So there are lots of fears that come up with the bike. Because in, in most sports, they're fairly safe. If I'm running, yes, I'm likely to get an injury at some point. But physical safety is pretty much okay. Whereas cycling is one of those sports where there are threats. Um, it could just be commuting through town, but you've got every taxi driver feels like they're trying to kill you. There's, I'm off out to Lanzarote in a couple of weeks and I love riding out there, but I know going down the mountains when you've got all the crosswinds, my threat system will be absolutely screaming at me to put on the brakes. And so there's physical threats. And then there's riding in a bunch, which lots of people get really intimidated about. So you have some very physical threats in cycling, but you also have a ton of psychological threats as well about winning and losing and keeping contracts and tons of stuff around disordered eating going on because of the culture that has built up over time. So it is an area where I think psychology is really important. And do you think then that cyclists have a like a harder time mentally or need to be more mentally fit, let's say, than other athletes because of the certain things you mentioned? Every time I talk to anyone in any sport, they are keen to know that their sport is the toughest and the hardest. <laughs> this will sound controversial and because I used to be awful about golf in that I didn't even consider it a real sport. It's like you just go out walking for four hours, don't you? But having worked with lots of golfers, I genuinely think golf and tennis are the hardest sports mentally. Why? Because golf, you are out there for four hours. You have got so much time for your brain to cause trouble. And to come up with all of those things that could go wrong, that it is really, really hard to stay focused. And we have about 45 minutes of focus in us before our mind will drift. As a golfer out there for four or five hours, it's really hard to switch it on and off. And tennis, I think, is so hard because you can see your opponent across. At least in cycling, actually, your opponent's at the side of you. And often, actually, you've all got your own jobs. So not that many people in the race are necessarily your opponents. And if you're doing a sportif, no one's really your opponent. It's you against the road and your bike in the distance. Whereas tennis, you can see your opponent. You have to react to them. And it is so focused on rankings and very clear outcomes. And you could play really well and still lose your match yeah. because you played really well at just the wrong times. And so... A lot of tennis players get very, very focused on their rankings and they attach that identity with, if my ranking is going down, I am failing as a person. And that's a really hard place to be. Whereas in cycling, we don't tend to have that same culture. So I think there are some really tricky psychological issues to handle in cycling, but it's not one of the ones I find that's probably the hardest. Do you think that's different for different disciplines in cycling? So 
obviously the standard pro road racing that people watch is a lot more intense, a lot quicker. So they're not probably not really thinking a lot, but say an ultra endurance cyclist is on the road on their own for days, nonstop. And so obviously they're going to have a lot more to oh, think about. Yes. I've worked a lot with people either trying to do Le Jog records or Ram or Transcontinental, Transamerica. And, and we spend a lot of time working on what are they going to be thinking about. And we'll literally come up with whole lists of how do you keep your brain entertained? How do you practice when your threat system pops up with lots of unhelpful stuff? How do you practice bringing it where you want it to be? How do you handle all of that time on your own? That is really difficult. What kind of things do you suggest people think about? It's very personal to them. Um, What we tend to do is, there used to be this idea, oh gosh, probably 150 years ago when sports science kind of started, was that you had a certain amount of energy in your body. And when it ran out, you stopped. And then more and more kind of more scientific sports science work has been done over the years, where we know that actually when they've done muscle biopsies, they know that when you feel like you're totally wiped out and there's nothing left, you've got about 30% of energy still left. Just knowing that I find can be quite helpful to go, you might feel like you're totally done for, but you're not. Um, So the more recent work comes from a sociobiological perspective where they're saying when you feel like you're done for, there are two things you have to do. You have to try and increase your motivation and then you try and reduce your perception of effort. So we can absolutely increase motivation. If I was to give you a million pounds to go out and cycle 100 miles tomorrow, bet you'd find a way to do it. Yeah. (laughs) But if I was going to give you two million pounds to do it, that wouldn't make much more difference. We can kind of max out our motivation at a certain level of, yeah, it won't make any more difference after this. So we'd spend a lot of time working on motivation, coming up with mantras, really talking about why people are doing these things. Why you, If you're trying to do something like a Le Jog record, why on earth are you totally burying yourself, training for a year, bringing all these people on board to try and help you with it? When you are on a dark road in the middle of the night and it, you're exhausted and so tired, why on earth are you doing this? You need those answers. And we'll often have those written on a bike somewhere. We'll have drilled them down. We'll have tied in music that matches those answers that you can listen to. But you can max out your motivation. And then you start looking at perception of effort. One of the biggest things that reduces perception of effort, sugar and caffeine. Because as you'll know, when people talk about bonking on the bike, it's because your body feels it can't do any more, but your brain's actually a really powerful component of that. So your brain is about 2 to 5% of your body weight. It takes 20% of the energy that you put in your body. And basically, it just loves glucose. So it's a sugar machine. So if you're not fueling it properly, that's where you really notice it. And that's where the brakes go on and go, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. So caffeine gels, glucose, really, really helpful for constantly topping up. Because when they're not topped up, your threat system switches on. And then everything's much harder to do. Simple things like smiling. It's a really nice piece of research where they started the research on runners, put them on treadmills. And when they were told to smile at certain points throughout it, the people smiling were able to go further than the people who weren't smiling. And then they took it to the lab where they found some cyclists. And as the cyclists were cycling to exhaustion, they flashed up images. And some of the cyclists got smiley faces and some of the cyclists got grumpy faces. And the cyclists with the smiley faces were able to go, it was either 12 or 16% further than those that got the grumpy faces. So simple things like tricking our brain into thinking, oh, this isn't so bad, I can do this, really help. You make it sound so simple. I'll just smile when, when you know, <laughs> it's really tough. <laughs> I'm, I'm working with lots of marathon runners at the moment because it's kind of big marathon season. And um, we come up a lot with the smile every mile mantra. Every time you go under a a banner or you see the next mile marker come up, give yourself a smile. Particularly marathons are good because there's usually a ton of spectators. So you smile at the spectators, they smile back, you get that real little boost. It doesn't have to be much, but it keeps you going for a little bit further. I can attest to that. I did the London Marathon last year and all the little signs, I didn't think about it would before I did it, but 
going along all the little signs that people make, it really helps. And my favorite one that I saw a lot, it was just pain is just the French word for bread. And every time I saw that, it made me laugh and it helped. Definitely. Laughing makes things feel easier. So anything you can do, however silly it feels... Um, I did Paris Half Marathon a few weeks ago with a brilliant group of women, 50 of us all running. And the night before I did a workshop and I brought along 100 stickers. And so we all wrote either messages to ourselves on the stickers or they were messaging back home to get partners and kids to send a little message. And you stick it on your gel packet. So when it feels tough... You pick up your packet. And I had really silly messages from my daughter. She's six. And it was like, win, mummy. <laughs> like, I'm really sorry, sweetie. That's not going to happen. Um, but it's lovely. Her writing with a little message and stickers she'd stuck all over the gel really kind of helps you feel that little bit of a lift. And it helps you to be able to do what you, you need to do. And I've worked with lots of ultra cyclists who've talked about how one of them talked about how a friend of theirs was doing a a new world record that was going to take around 20 days. And every day got to pull out a little um, envelope from a bag and read the message that was in that envelope that day from somebody and kind of ruminate on it while they're off riding for the next 16, 17 hours. So you can really do things that bring other people into your world when you're doing those long endurance events so that you remember that you're not on your own and there's others behind you. That I love that. It's actually really wholesome as well. And very doable. And then yeah. just um, you mentioned the threat system. Can you tell us a bit more about this? So if there's any neuroscientists listening, I really apologise because this is a very, very, very basic version. But I find it incredibly helpful for thinking about why our brain sometimes feels like it's out to get us. And lots of people say that to me. I would be a brilliant cyclist if I could just take my brain out because it gets in the way. So the way I like to describe it, is that there's three key parts of our brain that come into play when we're trying to perform at a high level in something like cycling. There's the habit zone. And that's why we do hours and hours and hours on the bike, turning over the pedals, getting our muscle memory used to things, because we're not just getting our muscle memory going, we're getting our brain memory, so that we don't have to think about most of what we do when we're out on the road or the mountains or whatever we're doing. It's there naturally. If you get thirsty, you're not thinking, oh, I need to lean down, grab a drink. How do I do that? You just do it because you've done it hundreds of times before. So in a race, in a sportif, even in something like a world record attempt, we probably want about 90% of what we're doing to be habitual. That's why we want people to practice so much. Then you have your prefrontal cortex. That's right at the front of your brain. Call that the logic system. So that part of your brain is making really good decisions. So if you're in a, a race and there's a group and you start to spot them going off the front, that's the bit that kicks in. And it drills back to your hippocampus, which is where knowledge, learning, memory is kept. And it will skim through, almost like the files. Last time a group went off the front, I didn't go with them and I was really annoyed at myself. So I'm going to try and go with them. And you make a decision and you tell your body what to do. And it's usually a pretty good decision because it's based on evidence from your past and the things you've learned. So if we just had those two bits of our brain, we would do really well. The problem is that your brain's job is not to be a brilliant cyclist or a brilliant anything. Our brain's job is survival. That's what it really cares about. And so to keep us alive, it has this very tiny part called the amygdala. Apparently, it's two bits. It looks like an almond. And its job is to look out for threats. And so it's scanning the whole time what threats are coming for me. And in cycling, we have physical and psychological threats. So we might have that, oh, I don't like being in a bunch. I don't like going around corners fast. I don't like descending kind of threats. Or that taxi driver's trying to kill me that keeps you on hyper, hyper alert. So you're really tuned in when you're riding. But we also get psychological threats. So I need to do well in order to get my new contract. I need to complete this world record because all these people have given up their time to come and support me and I need to pay them back. I need to be good because this is the only thing my dad seems to be proud of me about. All of those elements, plus ones, I tend to work with people who are highly intelligent and very perfectionistic. I call them VIPs, very intelligent perfectionists. 
And if you are perfectionistic, you want to be perfect. You can never be perfect on a bike. There's just too much stuff that comes up, but you'll constantly be trying and you'll be very scared that you might not be perfect. And so that really starts to trigger that threat system. When the threat system is triggered, our body is trying to do one of four things. So most people have heard of fight or flight. In cycling, we're not usually fighting anybody beforehand if we're nervous, but we do get very talkative. So I am one of those annoying people at the start of races. I'll be chatting away because that's how it gets rid of my nerves. The flight people don't show up to races. They'll do lots of training. They might do the odd sportif, but they're not going to race. No chance. What I tend to see most VIPs are freeze people. So they're there, but they're very, very quiet. And they would love everyone just to go away and leave them alone and ignore them until they start. Um, And then we also have what we call fawn, which tends to be if someone's lived in violence at home, so they may be in a domestic violence situation, or they've had very abusive coaches. And I often get athletes that the parents will come to me and say, their old coach was a bit old school. And that means their response to any kind of threat is going to be treading on eggshells around everybody. And I just want people to like me. I want people to be nice. I don't want to upset anybody. And and that's our body trying to protect ourselves with one of those four responses. When we have one of those responses, our brain sends around two chemicals, adrenaline and cortisol. They flood your body. Most of us can feel adrenaline quite well. Cortisol, we tend to feel longer term when we've, we've been feeling nauseous for a long time because the first place it goes is your tummy. So I've certainly seen athletes that will throw up before races. Most often, you just want to go to the toilet a lot. I was listening to something this morning that was like, why does my bladder always know when I'm nervous? I was like, yes, it really does. That's the first place the adrenaline and the cortisol go, which is why the toilet key is always horrendous at races. The next place it tends to go are your heart rate and your breathing rate. And obviously at certain points during races, you're going to want to be able to push them to be able to get the maximum out of yourself. So you don't want to start off too amped up. You might in short races, if you're doing track racing, it doesn't really matter if they're high to start with and you're pretty amped up for it because that gets you to a good place quicker and you're done within a few minutes anyway. But if you're doing longer stuff, you want to be much calmer at the beginning. Then the next place we notice, which is an issue for cyclists, is that we get very tight back and shoulder muscles. And so we tense up, which isn't great. And we also lose some peripheral vision. And that's rubbish when you're riding in a bunch because you need to be able, especially if you're riding on open roads, you need to know what's going on and where people are. And if you're just focused on getting away from the scary thing by focusing in front of you, that's really hard to perform well. So the annoying thing is if you want to do really well and you really, really care about it and you want to be perfect, the fact you've got a race or some way that you're going to be judged about what you do means your threat system triggers. You end up with all of those symptoms going on and it's then physically much harder to do well. So the thing I end up saying a lot to people is stop trying to win because the more you try to win or the more you try to beat somebody, the more threat that gets thrown into your system, the more negative response you have, the harder it is to do it. And can you like, on the other side of things can you push through those threats and is that is that a bad thing to do mentally if you know you see a threat coming and you're like I'm gonna hit this head on and go for it as some people do what impact can that have good impact actually but it's about the process that's going on in your head so when I work with athletes um I use um, a system based on ACT which stands for acceptance and commitment therapy Um, but it's a system I've come up with called Brave, where we are not trying to get rid of those thoughts. Because the amount of times we have those, I can't do this, I'm worried about this, I'm going to mess up, people are going to judge me, it'll be embarrassing. All of those thoughts we have, most people just say, oh, just don't worry about them, forget about it, you'll be fine. It doesn't work like that. The more someone tells you to forget about something, the more they pop up in your head. So you can do a quick experiment to try it, If you kind of scan your body and you notice, is there any part that's a bit achy or a bit itchy? And if you're cycling, if you're a cyclist listening to this, there's definitely going to be some part of you that's a bit achy because that's that's what we live with, right? So, So notice where the aches are and then spend the next 20 seconds desperately trying not to notice the achy bit. You can think about anything else, but you are not allowed to think about the achy bit. All that will happen is you notice the achy bit becomes really, really strong. So 
the more we try not to think about things, the more we think about things. So this approach is much more about accept that we have some worries. We have some fears. We want to be good. We want to be perfect. We want to be the best cyclist we can be. That doesn't have to be a bad thing. Let's accept that we have the worries, but learn how to sit alongside them rather than trying to block them out and get rid of them. So the next stage of it, I call reassignment, but it's about somebody called these gremlins yesterday, which I quite like the idea of little gremlins living in your head, but I call them safety seekers because actually they are almost like the thoughts in your head that are trying to keep you safe. They don't want you to do a bike race because you, you might fail and they don't want you to fail. They want you to stay safe. They love you. They want you to stay in your comfort zone so you don't risk screwing up. And, and we tend to theme them, we do theme them around those thoughts. So two of mine, I've Gordon Goodenough, who's always telling me I'm not good enough. And I have Sally Scoliosis because I have a wonky spine and she gives me every excuse under the sun why I should stop. Because it's, you've got scoliosis and no one's expecting you to do well. So it can be really helpful to think about, all right, I've got these thoughts. They come up for a reason. They're trying to keep me safe. But they're not facts. They are just thoughts. And the more we think about them as Sally Scoliosis or Gordon Goodenough, I can remember they're just thoughts and thoughts do not have to come true. Thoughts are just thoughts. They're just there. So once we've kind of assigned them, we can then have a different conversation with them. They don't have to feel like they're bullying us. I must stop because my back is bad. I don't have to be bullied by her because I can have a different conversation. And so that next stage, the A, is advocacy, working out how to advocate for yourself. And a lot of that is looking back at things you've achieved in the past and being able to give yourself evidence. I've had setbacks before. I've handled them. This has happened before. Actually, I am good enough because I won this or because I qualified in this or because I got my CAT 2 license. You start to give yourself evidence. And then the really key bit, the bit that helps you push through is your values. That's the V. If you know why you are doing that race, it really matters for the longer stuff, but it's really helpful for the shorter stuff too. It really helps you go, yeah, you know what? I'm scared. I'm, up, I'm worried about this. I'm going to do it anyway because, and that because is the most important part. And then the E is for engage because the things that scare us and the things that make us anxious are usually outcome-based. I'm worried this is going to hurt. I'm going to fall off and not be able to ride for a long time. I'm going to be judged by so-and-so. I won't get my next contract. So they're all very outcome-focused. And if we focus on engaging, that's about what can I do in this moment? That's on tasks and tasks are things you can control. So it could be, I am just going to spin up the road for the next, I don't know, 20 seconds until I thought about X. So they're all small things, but they're usually things that might help your technique. So I often think about it, it's the thing that your coach would yell at you. <laughs> and most people, especially the juniors I work with, they know the thing the coach says all the time. So if I'm running, for me, it's head up. It's a tiny thing. But lifting my head up means my shoulders go back, chest goes forward, legs come up higher. I run better. And then I'm stopping thinking about I can't do this because actually I'm running better. So, And cycling's great because you've got a long time to have these conversations in our head. Maybe not if you're doing track racing, but most of us, we've got lots of time out there that we can have the conversation of like, oh, what thoughts are popping up? Who am I assigning them to? Right, let's have a conversation. What's my advocacy? What are the facts and figures I've got about this? What value am I racing to? Why am I doing this? And what step can I take? And then you still go and do what you wanted to do, but you're doing it less aggressively in your own head. It doesn't feel like you're fighting yourself. It feels like you're soothing those worries. And it almost feels like there's a bit more purpose to what you're doing as well. Totally. So I'll give you an example. When I did Paris Marathon, or half marathon, the 17 kilometres was in a tunnel and it was really wonky roads and I tripped. And I did one of those really embarrassing, kind of throw myself across the road and thought I hurt my leg. And so instantly Sally Scoliosis pops up in my head. Oh, you're hurt. You could stop. You don't need to do the last four kilometres. You might as well stop right now. You've hurt your leg. Really good excuse. No one will mind about that excuse. And it was a really good opportunity to go, right, love, not having this right now. Usain Bolt's got scoliosis. He managed to run perfectly well. I think I can do this. I have done all the training. I've gone way further than this. I'm training for a full marathon, so I need to do 
the half. And with a big group of women, I am not being the one that lets everyone down and doesn't finish. So there's loads of the kind of the advocacy. Then the values. I've got a six-year-old. I do not want her to think you quit when things get tough. I want her to know if it's tough, you get harder, you push through it. And so how can I come home from a weekend in Paris running a half marathon and not have a medal to give her because mummy wimped out halfway through? That's my value. My value is my family and her there. And I am, I'm not wimping out. And then the engage the first step, head up, lift your feet up. It'll make the pain go away. And actually I used that knowledge of what's going on in your body. Brilliant. I've got a ton of adrenaline circulating right now because my threat zone has been triggered. I'm going to use that adrenaline. Adrenaline helps you run well. Brilliant. Let's use it. And you can really use it to turn those thoughts around. It was probably two or three minutes of having that conversation. And actually, it was fine to the end. And I'm much prouder of myself for, for handling it than would have been so annoyed and so regretful if I'd have wimped out. So it's a really nice process. So there's this wonderful thing about cyclists. We can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones and I'd be all like, yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement. And it is. But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ, and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling... With Ketone IQ, your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about World Tour teams like Jumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for, for longer. So if you fancy giving them a try um, and free energy for faster riding, you know, why not? Uh, then visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to get 20% off. So that's hvmn.com and the promo code cyclist for a 20% discount. And also, if you want to learn more about how ketones work, then HVMN's got a brilliant podcast, which is also really worth a listen. It's called Health Via Modern Nutrition with Dr. Lat Mansour, and you can find it in all the usual places. Finding the right insurance deal for your bikes normally involves spending hours of your time getting individual quotes from multiple providers. However, this week's podcast partner, Quotezone.co.uk, makes the insurance quote process quick and easy and provides quotes from a wide range of providers, including Yellow Jersey, Lacquer, Cycleplan and Bicmo, along with many more. In fact, Quotezone compares more providers than any other UK bicycle insurance comparison site, meaning you're more likely to find a deal that meets your needs and budget perfectly. We've partnered with Quotezone on a price draw to win a one-year subscription to Cyclist Magazine worth over £75. All you need to do is try out Quotezone and you'll be automatically entered into the prize draw when you get a quote. Simply go to quotezone.co.uk forward slash cyclist and try out the comparison tool to be entered into the prize draw. Please note this competition is open to our UK listeners only and the winner will be selected at random and notified before the end of May 2023. To take the example of descending in cycling, which obviously is a very common issue even in professionals, if they're thinking, okay, if I, I'm not, not the most confident descender, how do they stop thinking, okay, you know, if I get overconfident with this, ignore my fears, I could literally fall off this mountain and die if there's not good protection on the side of the road. How can they then overcome that almost a heightened risk than most other situations? So... A lot of that is risk assessment. We're not trying to override when our brain is being helpful to us. So when your safety seekers are telling you this is dangerous, sometimes we should listen to them. I often get a lot of genius that are like, can I just get rid of my amygdala? Get rid of the threat system. And I was like, 
one, medically, it's not possible. It's very, very deep in your brain. But two, even if you did, you'd walk straight out of my clinic into the road and get run over because you would do dangerous things. So we do need risk assessment within it, but we also need to have logical risk assessment. The problem is the amygdala and the threat system is emotion and pure emotion, whereas your logical system is able to analyse things much better. So to be able to do a course recce and look at it and go, I think I would actually, now I'm logically thinking this through, I would logically be safe going down this at 55 kilometres an hour. So I'm going to say to my amygdala, and I'm going to give it evidence that I am perfectly safe to go down at 55 kilometres an hour, as long as I am looking out for certain things. And you might do some imagery beforehand to practice that descent at that speed, looking out for the right things. So you've given your brain evidence that you can do it. And then you relax into it. Because the problem is on things like descending, if you're scared of descending, you tighten up. It's incredibly hard to descend well. When you're super tight, your heart is racing and you're trying to breathe at 22 breaths a minute. But actually, when we relax into it, we're much less likely to come off because we've relaxed, because everything's calmer, because we've still got our peripheral vision so we can see what we're supposed to be able to do. See, you're not trying to override with a value of, I am tough, I will do anything. You're trying to risk assess logically, without the amygdala and without the emotion getting in the way and then figure out how to do it as safely as you can, but making yourself confident. At Milan San Roma last year, Matteo Mohoric won with a crazy descent, right? And he almost came off a couple of times, but carried on even after he almost fell. And it came out that his heart rate was the same, if not slightly higher going down than going up the Poggio. Is he just bonkers or is he... <laughs> Because he's not calm in that, in that moment if his heart rate's that high, surely. And he's ignoring the threats that actually come in. Some athletes are incredibly powerful at ignoring what their brain says to them. The ones I always think of are the Brownlee brothers. So they are either doing phenomenally well, winning Olympic gold medals, or they often seem to be injured. And I think that's one of the hardest things about being a professional athlete is you are constantly on a line between pushing yourself and hurting yourself. And so some very good athletes are able to ignore that amygdala and that threat system in a way that our bodies and brains are not designed to and that most of us are unable to for a very, very good reason. But yeah, if you can see those athletes that are collapsing before the line and have just pushed themselves too, too hard... They can do some amazing things, but they might not have necessarily as long a career or as a consistent career because they are able to push themselves into places that your body and brain might not healthily want to go to. And what strategies can those athletes who are pushing themselves beyond their own limit, who are you know potentially pushing through pain barriers that one might not want to push through, and then of course there is that potential risk of burnout what can a lot of that. yeah what can an athlete sort of do to help perhaps get a better balance so those kind of athletes you're talking about that i see a lot with burnout um with overtraining syndrome sometimes end up with things like red s where you are exercise addiction you are very capable of ignoring the warning signs and you push through with that kind of compulsion to do it and we spend a lot of time working on perfectionism and trying to teach brains that you can be more flexible in what you do. A really simple thing, if this might be you, anyone listening to this, is um, the yes-no game. It's something we often start with, and it's, it's used a lot in eating disorder work as well, actually, where every day for a week, you have to not do something you always do or do something you never do. Because it's just designed to teach your brain it is. And so one of the ones I'll often come up with is, do you always straighten out your duvet when you make your bed in the morning? And if someone's like, oh God, yeah. It's like, right, try and leave it messy. It is really hard if that's something you've done for a very long period of time. And we talk about it, most people, we're trying to build up habits. But actually, if you've pushed yourself to a level of burnout and you've pushed yourself because of that perfectionism where you just have to do 
everything full on, it usually means actually everything you're doing is quite grey. There's no super hard stuff and there's no super easy stuff. And it's actually very hard to to do well when everything's in that grey kind of level. You get really stuck in the middle of it all. But we really work on kind of how do you teach your brain to be more flexible? How do you start to listen to yourself? How do you move away from some of those routines that you have and, and do th- be naughty, do things differently? Um, and that helps you start to give yourself a little bit of a break. All I can say, and also we would do lots of self-care stuff. And, and I sometimes say I, I struggle to work in elite, elite sports levels because I care about the athlete much, much, or the person behind the athlete much more than the, the athlete that's going to perform at a really high level. You, I think you can only be a long-term athlete if you actually really look after yourself and your mental health and, and you give yourself a break sometimes and you're not constantly beating yourself up. And, and that can be a hard place if you're trying to win Olympic medals. So it's much more about being kinder to yourself, listening to your body and having that sort of mental flexibility rather than this previous idea that we've had previously in sport of being super, super tough and pushing through whatever you can. Because I feel like mental toughness previously has been kind of like a, it's seen as the be all and the end all being really mentally tough means you can do anything you want to do. What do you think about the idea of mental toughness and why has it been so ingrained in elite sport in the past? It sounds good, doesn't it? It's like such, I, I see the amount of like mindset coaches and, and performance coaches and they're all like, yeah, I'm going to make you mentally tough. I guess I'm very, I just roll my eyes now. Um, it can work for a short time, but I guess I see the people coming out of the end of that that are totally and utterly exhausted and there is nothing left to give and they feel empty and they've lost the love for what they do. So yes, mental toughness can work for a bit but it depends do you want to be a one-hit wonder and go and spend a year two years winning loads of stuff and feeling really cool about yourself or do you want to be cycling for your whole life and actually have a career that lasts 20 years and get amazing experiences doing different things but realizing that you really need to look after yourself and and think more of your mental health like your physical health because you need to give yourself a break. You need to be able to switch off and not have to fight through everything all of the time. And that's why some of previously in sports psychology, an approach called CBT was used a lot, which to me feels quite aggressive of like, you've got this unhelpful thought and we're going to shut it down. We're going to teach you, you don't have to have it, which is why I love ACT so much because it's so much gentler. It's like, look, we all have worries and we all have fears and we all have these hopes and goals and dreams of the things that we desperately want to do. And we will do them better and be able to come back and do things again if we look after ourselves and our brain and our thoughts in the process of doing that. So it sounds so cheesy to talk about kind of self-kindness and stuff, but it is really important because otherwise burnout, I don't think people take burnout anywhere near as seriously as they should. And even things like Red S, where it might feel like it's like an accidental eating disorder where you've stepped up all your training and you just haven't quite eaten enough to match it. Both of them probably take maybe a year to at least to recover from. And so pushing yourself into that place, and I see people getting signed off for two weeks by their doctor with burnout. It requires months of giving your body a break. This is your body saying, you have done too much for too long and I am not having any more of it. I'm stopping. And sometimes that's something like a stress fracture if you've got red ass, which is quite helpful because that forces you to stop for a while and to reflect on it and to start to learn. But it's a hard place to be and nobody wants to get there. So if a sports person, say in cycling, a big example is Tom Dumoulin, stepped away from the sport because he was struggling mentally and obviously came back for a bit and retired now. But is him stepping away from cycling would you say that's a good thing because he's looking after himself or is that a case of he's not looked after himself so he's had to step away? So I don't know him and I wouldn't comment specifically on individual athletes, but it always warms my heart actually when someone's gone, do you know what? It's, it's just sport. It's brilliant. It's a living. We all love watching it. But he as a person, 
any cyclist as a person is the most important person in their world. And to be able to say, I deserve to feel well, to feel happy is brilliant. And I think more and more of us can learn from that. It is tougher, much tougher when you're a professional because it is your career as well. It's who you are. And, and when I've talked about, you know, the sticks of rock you get at the seaside that the whole way through it would say like Brighton or Bournemouth. When we love our sport, it's like if we snapped ourselves in half like a stick of rock, if it says cycling the whole way through it, that's really hard because who you are is linked with what you do on the bike, the results you get, the times that you do. If you're a professional, that's doubly so. That's, that's your name is always said at the same time as cyclist. And so it can feel incredibly tough when everything is all mangled up together. What you do is who you are and how you feel about yourself and you're going through a tough time mentally. And so um, it's really helpful when professionals say, it's not worth it right now because that helps the rest of us go, ah, well, if they can do that, the rest of us can see that actually sometimes it's perfectly fine to take some time off and it's perfectly fine to prioritise other things. And it's really important that we come and find something else because if you love cycling and you're good enough at it that you get to go and be a professional, one of the reasons you probably loved cycling was that it was your free time, it was your escape. You felt like you got to be yourself on a bike. You got to escape from whatever was going on at work or at school. And then you go and make it your career and suddenly you throw in all of the extra pressures there is no mental health break. You're doing what you loved has become what you have to do. And so that is incredibly tough. So it's really important that when pros are in that place, they, they talk about it if they can, because that helps the rest of us see that we should be humans first and just ride a second. And another external pressure facing athletes is social media. Um, how, how does this affect them and how can they deal with it? So I'm not on Strava for a very good reason. And I think some people really enjoy it. And I think the, um, the sense of belonging that social media gives us is incredibly powerful. So I don't want to vilify it in any way. I think belonging is, it was the, in the 10 pillars of success, it was the first characteristic I wrote about. I think it's so important that we feel like we belong. Um, I think we saw that with the pandemic of finding ways to, to know that we've got others that are like us. It's why bike clubs are so popular. Um, it's why we like seeing what other people are doing. It's like why we like Zwift because we're on there with other people. So there can be some huge benefits to social media. But there's two types of perfectionism. There's adaptive perfectionism where you're focused on being the very best you can be, which has some issues, but we can handle. But there's social comparison perfectionism maladaptive perfectionism where we are measuring ourselves against others all of the time without taking into consideration any of the elements that are going into their performances. They might have a lot more time to train. They might have genes that are perfectly designed for cycling. They might have a brilliant bike and we are comparing what we know of our truth, our warts and all element with the glossy shiny stuff that we see on Strava and that's really, really tough. And we end up beating ourselves up. And I did some research on exercise addiction and technology a few years ago. And I will always remember interviewing a cyclist, a long distance cyclist, who said they'd been going out for a ride and they'd been dreading the ride all day. And they were about five miles from home. They kind of left about five miles in and their Garmin died. And they felt the biggest sense of relief because no one was going to be able to judge the ride they were doing. And they said they had a brilliant ride after that because they couldn't measure it because we're measuring usually by other people's metrics. We're not measuring by, did I have a brilliant ride? Did I have a really good chat with my mate? Did I have great cake at the coffee shop? Do I feel better after a result of that ride? We're measuring by how far was it and how fast did I go? And is it faster than Fred that I've just seen on Strava? That's so funny you say that because I put a lot of my stuff on Strava as private and then when I feel, I, everything's on private, but then if I feel like I've done a good ride, I'll put it as open. <laughs> That's literally like yeah. exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so I advise a lot of people put it on private. I will also advise sometimes just go out for a ride with no watch and no Garmin and, and enjoy the bike 
And I'll advise that to pros too, because sometimes you don't want to spend the whole time you're out on the bike thinking, what's my coach going to think about this? What are they going to say? How's this going to be judged? Go and have some fun on the bike. Remember why you love it. Remember why it's important. And if you want to share on social media afterwards, share the love, share a photo of something awesome you took whilst you were out there. Go and go out for a three-hour ride and see a brilliant photo opportunity or something funny that you come across or somebody brilliant that you meet and have a chat to. But purposely try and find what are your metrics of success on the bike that are not how fast did I go, how long did I go out for, how far did I ride. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a really good message. And just on the future of psychology within sport, do you think every cycling team is going to have a sports psychologist as we move forward? I kind of hope they don't because every cyclist is an individual. And what we know about psychology is it works best when you have rapport with your psychologist. When you feel like that person has got your back and is on your side and you can relax with them and you can be totally open and honest and feel like you want to learn together, then it's really effective. If you just have a person that is picked by the team management that feels like cyclists are worried they might feed stuff back, that is allocated X amount of time with each athlete, Sometimes they might not need anything and they feel like they're sitting there awkwardly, like, oh, got to come up with something. And somebody else might need loads of time and doesn't get it because they've had their four allocated hours. So I would love to see sports psychology taken far more seriously. And I would love there to be allocations of, I guess, money to, to pay for sports psychology for athletes. But I don't think they should be sitting one person within a team doing it all. I would love to see them being able to find the people that will help them best. And in terms of a sort of wider industry, sort of more society viewpoint, is a psychologist something everyone can benefit from? Yeah, so only probably half my clients are athletes. I also work a lot with doctors, uh, with DJs, with opera singers, um, lots of CEO kind of startup people. So Um, And lots of kids that are doing exams at the moment and stressing, quite obviously. So I really think the techniques we use in performance psychology totally work for anyone. And actually, it's really joyful when someone comes back and went, that thing we worked on, I used it at work where it felt like my boss was bullying me. And I've been able to handle it far less emotionally, far more logically. And I've got this solution. That's amazing because then you've taken the tools that your sport has given you but you can use them anywhere. Yeah, no, so true. And um, lastly, your marathon. Oh, Which one are you doing? When is it? Paris in 10 days time. I'm not ready. Oh, good luck. You're going to smash it. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy it. So the goal will, yeah, the goal will be to find ways to enjoy it. So it might well be looking out for great signs as Will talked about. Um, it will definitely be smiling a lot. I will have a lot of gels with a lot of messages on them and I am going to make an awesome playlist so that even if I'm out there for a long time, I'll have some great tunes playing. Love that. Well, thank you so much, Josie. This has been really insightful. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Thank you. Oh, well, thanks to Josie for coming on the podcast. That was absolutely fascinating and she definitely mentioned things that I just really haven't thought about before I mean for one the impact that Strava can have on an athlete well I uh, I actually only upload to Strava when I go somewhere interesting so I don't really want everyone to see that I'm not that good a cyclist given my job but it's quite nice when people can see that I've gone somewhere really cool can you define somewhere interesting are we talking Surrey Hills <laughs> well I would still upload Surrey Hills because it's not at home But if I'm commuting or going to like a photo shoot in Epping Forest, it's not that interesting for people that follow me. Whereas going somewhere that's not at home, it's like, oh, what are you doing there? You know, that's really cool. Let's take a picture on. Yeah, agreed. And my my Garmin is like automatically uploads everything. So if I do a workout, if I play tennis, like a run or anything, everything uploads. And so I just keep it all on private. So I'm like, no one needs to know that I went to the gym this morning. I don't know. I find it a bit weird. So yeah, I just put everything on private and if it's if it's a vaguely long cycle it goes it goes to everyone. 
Um, well, what else did you find interesting from her chat? So I've actually been through some bits of therapy before and a lot of what she said is not a lot, but it's parts of what she said I'd heard before in those sessions. So I thought it was really interesting to hear her talk about that in a slightly different way. And also how it relates to everyone and you know, a little therapy session for people listening, which is always helpful. <laughs> yeah, and I really liked her sort of idea of this mental flexibility rather than the toughness idea. Because I think I'm I'm quite guilty of being that person that will push through barriers even when you're not meant to. And there can definitely be obviously an upside to it. But sometimes when it happens, I get really cross with myself because I'm like, you've pushed yourself and actually it's quite dangerous. And I haven't li- listened to my amygdala, my little almond at the back of my brain. So yeah, just finding that balance, I think, is it's great. And also realising that... Um, I'm a I'm a VIP because I go quiet before a race. <laughs> very intelligent perfectionist. Very. Yeah. What what happens to you before a race, Will? Yeah, I'm the same. Exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> I'd start the London Marathon. I just I was like, don't talk to me. Please get out of my way. Yeah, when I did my ultra marathon in July, I just wouldn't talk to anyone. My friends that came with me like really chatty it's like 6am in the morning and I was like no sorry (laughs) I'll be a mute this morning yeah funny how that works and the adrenaline that goes around the body and pretty exciting it does make me really want to go outside and go for a ride and think about the little people on my shoulders my little devils and give them a name and have a bit of a chat (laughs) (laughs) no do you not feel the same I don't give my names but you still have little devils on your shoulders. Oh, yeah. That's fine. Then. And also, I, another point she made was about um, no sports psychologist within teams. We're not having a generic one, essentially, is what she was saying. I don't know. I think that I get what she's saying. It does also have its benefits, I think, because you know, if a team's got a psychologist, then everyone in the team is going to be familiar with them and they're around all the time. I guess mm. they'd probably be a lot more friendly have a better personal relationship maybe than you know someone you see once a week once a month so I think it probably does have a benefit in that regard but what I've just said could be completely wrong because I'm not qualified yeah I get your point and it's like more is the word homogenized amongst like and if they can work with the DSs and team managers and whatnot but then again it obviously always depends on whether you have that good personal relationship or not it depends on what the team hired psychologists has been briefed as well if they're just there trying to get their athletes to be have a winning mindset it's different to looking after themselves yeah definitely it's quite a tricky balance isn't it between winning and looking after yourself i prefer to do neither (laughs) i was gonna say uh just talking about dogs there will is that herbie um munching away at something (laughs) yeah he's just found he's just found a bit of plastic wrapper that he shouldn't have and he's walked off because he shouldn't have it. Oh, oh so sweet. <laughs> oh, it's so cute. Well, I mean, on the note of psychology, is there anything you're going to go, like, think about what Josie said this week? Anything you're going to try and apply? I'm going to find a hill. I'm going to go down it really fast. I'm not going to break. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get a, a KOM on a descent. I'm going to go and do, go fly out to Tuna Canyon and beat Tom Pickup. Right, well, you've heard it here first. Uh, Will Strickson will be getting the new KOM. (laughs) Could you please upload it on Strava so we've all got proof? Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Well, I think that was an absolutely brilliant insight into the world of sports psychology. And it's actually made me want to kind of learn more. Maybe I'll check out one of her books, 10 Pillars to Success. We could all do a bit of that. Well, look out for the next Cyclist Magazine podcast, which will be out in a fortnight. Um, And in the meantime, make sure you check out the Cyclist website. That's cyclist.co.uk for all the latest pro news, all the cool groovy tech stuff. Um, And in between then, recommend getting the, the latest issue of the Cyclist Magazine, which is available on all good newsstands. And you can also subscribe um, in the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to Cyclist Magazine podcast. I've been Emma Cole. I've been Will Strickson. (laughs) Bye. Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus.
the place to watch all the best live bike racing and loads of brilliant cycling films too. And since it's May, that means the Giro d'Italia. So pick up an annual pass to GCN Plus now and you'll get every kilometre of the Giro live, plus a whole season's worth of action for less than half the price of 12 monthly subscriptions. You'll be able to watch all your favourite races, including grand tours, monuments, classics, major stage races and more, live and ad-free on GCN+. So tune in from the 6th of May to see if Remco Evenepoel can finally win the race that kicked off his career, the Giro d'Italia, aka cycling's most beautiful race. So say the Italians anyway. Along with all this live action, GCN Plus has on-demand highlights and replays, proper analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Danny Rowe, and the exclusive World of Cycling show, a weekly roundup of the must-see moments and major talking points in road, gravel and cyclocross. GCN Plus also has a huge library of exclusive cycling films and documentaries with new releases added every week. You can watch it all on any of your devices and screens so you never need to miss a key moment again. All of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription by heading on over to gcn.eu forward slash cyclist15.